Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience. My guests are Deborah and Mark Parker. Deborah is professor of Italian at the University of Virginia. Mark is professor of English at James Madison University. They are co-authors of Inferno Revealed, From Dante to Dan Brown, and most recently of Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy. Have you sucked up to someone before? I'm sure you have. Do you know a sycophant? I'm sure you do. Given that the answer to these questions is undoubtedly yes, this is the book for you. We had a great conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Deborah and Mark Parker. Deborah and Mark, welcome to the podcast. We're happy to be here. Yes, we're happy to be here. Now, writing a book about sycophants, like sycophancy, sucking up here, do you particularly loathe sycophants? Do you find the tendency in yourselves? So it's like a self-help uh, kind of thing. I mean, what would draw what would draw you to write this book? Because it's a fascinating topic. Um, well, I think we're alternately, or I am alternately amused and um, saddened and or disgusted by them. Depends on the nature it takes. I've been very amused lately just talking to various people I come across from the guy that's my hair, one of the staff administrators in my office, and just asking them um, if they have any stories. And it's been pretty hilarious and um, amusing listening to the various accounts that people have. Yeah, as soon as this book came out, everybody wants to tell us their anecdotes and stories, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> so what was the best story somebody had told you, a friend or something, as you were preparing the book? What was the most absurd? Sick of I mean, you list some pretty good ones in the book, but was there anything that didn't make it in that was just particularly absurd or offensive? Well, I'll just tell you some recent ones I've heard. Getting my hair cut this morning, and I asked the guy who cuts our hair, you know, does it take place in uh, in your profession? And immediately started talking about another stylist in the salon who routinely lies and flatters uh, his clients. It's not that uncommon for a stylist to flatter clients, but this particular person uh, often exaggerates, uh, occasionally lies, and in, to, in an effort to ingratiate himself with um, with his clients and in the hopes that he'll then be invited to events and where he can talk about his business, give out business cards. Another amusing story I heard recently came from a fellow academic, and she was talking about a famous uh, Spanish professor at Yale who loves baseball, uh, is Cuban, has written a book on baseball, and graduate students routinely show up at his classes all wearing baseball hats. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I, I was going to ask, you know, this is... Uh, it, it can seem, I, I mean, something like flattering somebody could seem like being gracious or being kind. But I remember, it's a slippery slope, right? I have a friend recently, it's actually, he was a guest on the podcast a while back, and we were talking about, he's a journalist, and we were talking about the Billy Bush tape, right? Mm -hmm. With Donald Trump. And my friend said, you know, where I felt mildly sympathetic is I have such a need to be liked that I could imagine maybe going along and laughing at something like that just for the sake of being liked in the situation, right? So there is this pernicious dimension to it, right? I, or it can be. Yes. You know, the line between flattery and I guess the, there's not a clear opposite to that, but let's just say flattery and friendship or flattery and being polite 
or being just kind is sometimes really hard to get at. And it's something that both literary sort of figures and philosophical figures and moralists have thought about for a long time. And recently, even more recently, people in psychology, it's very difficult to know what that line is. And it's perfectly true that often we flatter, we're kind of drugged along into it because of our desire to just go along. And I think one of the one of the more obvious ones is probably that infamous cabinet meeting that Trump had uh, over the summer, where everyone went around the room doing that. I think probably there may have been some real flatterers in there, but there were probably some people who just really were caught in the moment and were perfectly willing to go along. I'll just add one other short observation. And everybody likes to be flattered. And everyone routinely says nice things to people. Oh, somebody gets a new dress or something. You say, oh, that color really looks good on you. And that's that's perfectly common and acceptable social behavior. Where it becomes a little sketchier is when the person does this habitually. Is the person an inveterate flatterer? And is this the default position? Then I think you enter more of a gray area because often the the ingratiator has ulterior motives in mind. Yeah, you know, I, I always... I always suspect if Jesus and Kant agree on something, it's probably true. And, and both of them, right, say that ethics are a matter are, are so deeply bound with intention, right? Yes. That, that it's that you can't always tell if something's ethical by looking at the action. You have to look at intention. No, you you all point out that flatterers wind up pretty low in Dante's hell, <laughs> like the eighth rung. I mean, you can't go further in the basement very much than that. Like it's pretty deep. Is is that because the intention is so? is so evil like because it's so deleterious to what builds social bonds that that's why you wind up lower than some of the sinners at the top of the scale well dante's inferno was one of the really key texts for our book and you know in it we do look at many examples of um famous and influence uh infamous literary flatterers but what was really a surprise to us, who both of whom have uh, both of us have taught Dante over many years, is that I've noticed my students and just readers that I encounter are very surprised to see that Dante places flatterers and other uh, types of sinners in the eighth circle. There are nine circles in hell, but he places murderers and tyrants in the seventh circle. So it's really hard for contemporary readers of the poem to think that there's anything worse than murder. But the reason that Dante places flatterers in the eighth circle, which is devoted to sins of fraud, and other examples of fraudulent sins include uh, sowing discord, lying, hypocrisy, embezzlement, um, serious uh, robberies. And Dante sees a a sin-like flattery, flattery, like uh, he sees it as a sin against the community. It's not just a transaction um, between the target, the ingratiator, and perhaps some bystanders. For Dante, flat, uh, flattery, especially if it's endemic, creates an atmosphere of distrust, and it's impossible to speak openly and frankly to others in that community. So he sees it as a sin against the community and that it's uh, related to the other sins of fraud, like hypocrisy, sowing discord, lying. In a way, it, it sort of debases the common currency of everyday life, because you don't know what's flattering and what's not. 
And it even becomes possible that a kind word is taken as flattery and flattery is taken as a kind word. You really are completely confused. So it really makes living an everyday exchange of life more difficult. And I think that's why Dante puts it down lower. It's shocking. My students are always stunned when they uh, arrive at that passage and they say, how could flattery be worse than murder? <laughs> and this is the reason Dante did this. Do they flatter you by saying, thank you, Professor, for teaching us these deep moral truths? About <laughs> I wish they did. <laughs> and I would take it as a truth. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You know, Harry Frankfurt, uh, he's a retired philosopher from Princeton, wrote a great book called On Bullshit, which is, uh, I've often thought uh, every student in, in any higher education system should, be a, should have to read that book before they talk. But, uh, but he says, you know, the liar is morally superior in some ways to the bullshitter because if someone's bullshitting, they're just talking to hear themselves talk. They're just trying to pass off a, a sort of fraud or a persona. But the liar has to at least get acquainted with the truth to deceive. You know, if the bullshitter tells the truth or doesn't, they don't really care. But the liar has to, has to become familiar with the truth as, so to hide it. So is the, is the, is the sycophant, the suck up, uh, the ass kisser closer to the liar? than to the bullshitter? You know, that you mentioned intention earlier, and this gets to be a really complicated argument. One of the things we really didn't quite sort of expect when we were thinking about this book was how complicated this simple everyday action is, but crucial. And one of the things that you can't know as someone who's, the, who's uh, having flattery aimed at them is what the intention of the person is. And you can never really tell that. That's bad enough, but then it gets a kind of, there's a double movement here. What we find is that both in literature and in some of the social science, it's pretty clear that flatterers often don't know that they're flattering. They don't know their own intention. So in a certain sense, the, the Frankfurt comparison is really a good one because he's talking about knowing and not knowing the truth. 
And here again, that's repeated in the, the flatterer. Sometimes they do know that they're flattering, and sometimes they really don't. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you all talk about Henry Kissinger, and he seems a little bit self-deceived, right, about his, his own his own sycophancy. I mean, when he reflects on it, you see you guys paint an interesting picture of him in the book. Yeah, um, he is, uh, well, he's really noteworthy for some of the things he said that came out on the Watergate tapes some of the really extreme positions he took in flattering the president. And I think probably in his mind, he's thinking back to The Courtier, the book of The Courtier by Castiglione, in which a, a, a good courtier basically goes along with the prince as on indifferent things, sort of hold their fire and hold their authority for the big moments. So all these indifferent things you say yes to, but then you're able to sort of speak the truth when it really is necessary. The only problem is, is that when you listen to Kissinger, he seems to be going further than indifferent things. He seems to be saying things that really don't, that really cannot be accepted in any way. I would add one other observation about someone like him. He's a historical figure, and he's one of a few others that we include in the book. But when it really, it, it's very difficult to determine the intentions of actual historical people. And that's one reason we find, and we, we argue actually, that literature offers a much deeper understanding of the practice of sycophancy. Because when we're observing the people around us or thinking about someone like Henry Kissinger, uh, either you have to get the information from a book, but with real people, we observe them in um, occasional, sometimes um, just one or two situations, we don't get to see what they're doing over a period of time. With co-workers, that may not be the case. You, you do get to observe them. But in literary work, you get a much more expensive treatment of, of sycophancy. You can see the consequences of it. It's, what, it's much more wide-ranging. And that imaginary aspect, I think, can be very illuminating. You know, literature is good at modeling um, empathy in a certain sense. It asks us to sort of think through the protagonist and see them both from the inside, how it feels to be doing this, and also from the outside when other people comment on it. And I, I think that's a very powerful thing that literature does. It really, no other, no other really, no other discourse really does so well. It doesn't have that kind of potential to make you understand from the inside what flattery is like. And I think that doesn't solve the problem of intention in all cases when you're looking at people, but it certainly makes you a lot more um, astute about making judgments about it. Yeah, you know, there was a book I read a few years ago by Philip Fisher called The Vehement Passions. And he was, ta he, he was talking about how basically these passions, like shame, anger, that the, these things, are, they, they sort of, they're, they're monarchical in, in the human condition. He says, but, but modernity and social science disposes us to not understanding them with all these conflicted like, states of self and things like that. And he makes the same argument that, liter that, it, that literature actually maybe gives us a better window into these primal things that are one of the few universal things we have, these, these vehement passions. You kind of make a similar argument Right, that things like social science and, and, and some of the sort of uh, business consulting gurus, impression management. I mean, these things you could you could almost call they, they almost uh, take some of the most repulsive things you point about sycophancy and, and, and gives it. Hey, these are tips for succeeding. Right, this is you know, how to get how to get along well and influence people. There's a great irony that one of the great figures in the study of this field was a psychologist, Ernest Jones, and he wrote a long book on ingratiation, Edward Jones, um, and he wrote a long book on ingratiation in 64. And he 
came at it with a kind of humanistic value. He was always quoting Chesterfield and Samuel Johnson, and but still trying to work this out. And his biggest problem was methodological because he was having such problems with intention. But there's about 20 pages in that book in the end that people sort of began to, um, in a slangy way, refer to as the ingratiator's Bible. you how to do it and how to succeed. And he was doing it basically just to list the ways in which ingratiation was successful and how to be a successful in, ingratiator. But he certainly wasn't backing it up. He certainly was seeing it as, a, as an immoral kind of choice. The shift is, is in some of the business school uh, literature that's doing some of the same kind of experiments, they seem to basically neutralize that. It's not a moral issue. And there's a sense in which they're just sort of showing people how far they can go. They view it kind of as a transaction. And they view it in a way that it has no consequences beyond just the simple D. You get in, you get out, and you're done. Uh, one of the favorite, one of the novels I enjoyed most to, um, writing about was Cincinnati, Jane Austen's novels. And we wanted to include works that were well known to the public at large. And that's one of the reasons we chose authors like Dante, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, Charles Dickens. Uh, Proust might be one of the more difficult ones. But there's a. it turns out that there is a sycophant in every one of Austen's novels. But perhaps the most uh, spectacular example is Lucy Steele. And I was very surprised. I was looking at all of the passages about Lucy. She's the one whose um, arrival for the man that one of the heroines, Eleanor Dashwood, is in love with. And his name is Edward Ferris. At the very end of Sense and Sensibility, uh, Austin comments on Lucy's success because she's wildly successful. She ends up jilting Edward, who is the second brother, and marrying his older brother and inheriting him, uh, who inherits a much greater fortune. And she ends up being in a much more spectacular uh, and ends up on a much more um, higher level of society. And at the end, Austin says that all it costs her is her uh, time and conscience. And that's but the, that conscience is is a, a great deal. It, uh, uh, she puts it very subtly, but it's just this assiduous attention to self-interest. And those are Austin's words. Yeah. When you think about that, it, like, what do we have that's most valuable? Right? Our time and our souls, <laughs> you know, ourselves. Yeah. You know? And it seems like, you know, sycophancy costs you both. Right. You wind up spending all this time. You know, it's great too. you talk about in the book, you talk about the Simpsons and Smithers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was such a great character. And I love that scene where you talk about the Simpsons, where Mr. Burnus is talking in German. And then Smithers tries to like mocks, you know, like math mimics yeah. of German back to him. It's such yeah. a great picture yeah and there's a book you know there's a book that you can buy to learn to suck up in german it's sort of a <laughs> that's part of the, the joke there as well <laughs> yeah simpsons is a uh, smithers is a great character because he offers you maybe if you want to call it sycophancy sunny side up he's ever cheerful and of course uh, the fact that he's in love with mr burns contributes to that uh, we don't learn that much about sycophancy and observing sick uh smithers but we're wonderfully amused because where the creators of the cartoon really excel is finding endless ways of making Smithers' um, flunkyism, his appeasing, his desire to uh, ingratiate himself with Mr. Jones so wonderfully varied, whether he's washing Mr. Jones' hair one day, not that Mr. Jones, I'm uh, sorry, Mr. Burns has much hair, or bringing out a sock puppet trying to cheer off when he's unhappy. 
And uh, since we're talking more about pop culture, I guess, although of a, a very exalted kind of kind, it's probably worth remembering that in thinking about sycophancy just as a transaction that you can do and not do, and it doesn't change you, the, I think that's sort of more the normal attitude towards flattery right now. If you think of just the words that people have coined over time, they really paint a rich story of consequences because there's an association of uh, sycophancy with slime and with excrement that goes on forever. It's bootlicker, it's ass kisser, it's brown noser, it's toad eater. And of course, Dante has his flatterers covered in excrement uh, and he uses a very sort of direct term. He doesn't use a high flown uh, sort of uh, epic term. He says merida, which is kind of. I guess you translate it just simply as shit. It's a kind of a, a, a coarse term. So they they understood this very well. And I think that uh, that kind of has dropped out of the equation, that sense of sycophancy actually changing the person who is employed in it. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that you point out, like in the, the ideal courier model, that you are pretty tolerant on matters of indifference. Mm-hmm. So that when the real moment comes to speak the truth, you have, you, you, you've won the right to be heard. As opposed to the sycophant, you only pick a, a conflicts on, right. on adiaphora, right? Matters of indifference, so that you can really get never, you never really offend, and you really work your way up the ladder, right? Right. There's never no. There's never that moment. But you know, it's funny in the in the courtier that what what haunts the courtier as an ideal for Castiglione is this question of being a noble flatterer. At one point, one of the characters in there. After hearing a description of what a, a, the noble courtier should do, he says, you, you seem to have described a noble flatterer uh, to me. And so there's and he takes pain to separate himself from that in the ensuing conversation. But that's, again, that question of intention and that very difficult task that we have of drawing a line between what is polite and kind and friendly versus what is flattering and deceptive and manipulative um, when we see it. Yeah. And Disraeli comes out is one of these portraits, right? Like, I mean, Disraeli in your book, uh, I mean, he's, he's a more ambiguous fit. I mean, there's, it seems like the noble flatter for the for, for to the end of statesmanship, right? That's his, that's, that's the gambit, you know, in a sense. And he was committed to this very early. He came from a party that was having difficulty and he had to make his way through with a, a great deal of personal exploit. He didn't have really the votes to do everything he wanted to early in his career. And he became quite adept at flattery. I mean, his uh, great sort of um, quote about this is, with the aristocracy, you lay it on with a trowel, he said. And when he says aristocracy, he means not only the queen, uh, but also uh, the sort of people in the upper house, the House of Lords. So he is someone who's who's really sort of a, a master of this. And the relationship that he carves out with Victoria when he is prime minister, it was seemingly mutually gratifying. And it really, you read the letters and you just can hardly believe that this isn't tongue in cheek, but it really doesn't seem to in another way. They're really going at each other with a, it's almost like a knight with his lady and it's a sort of a medieval quest, which fit in perfectly with, uh, you know, his far right wing feudalist uh, politics and certainly with Victoria's sense of herself as uh, the queen. Um, but it's, it's right there and he did it very well and he seemed to hold it up right to the last minute. Did you two, you two are married. Did you meet when you were both in graduate school or were? Yes, you know, in graduate school. Was there flattery involved in the courtship here? Is it tough if people are studying this stuff or you're like, don't flatter me? <laughs> well, that was before we were studying it. So we were just naive. <laughs> if we were flatterers, we were just, uh, 
you know, <laughs> doing what came naturally before we thought about it. <laughs> so your advice to courting to English graduate students when they're courting is like court before your comps when you don't know as much. <laughs> That's right. Court, yeah, before you know too much. Sometimes there's a fall in the knowledge, which is a, a vexing, if not troubling. <laughs> Did this book come? I mean, you talk about the Trump administration, and 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 it is hard to miss. I mean, I think not just of that 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 cabinet meeting, but I think of when the Mooch, you know, who uh, lasted an entire week. I love when Steve Bannon uh, uh, was fi- was fired. He said, "I lasted exactly fifty two Mooches," you know, for <laughs> two weeks. Like, but I think of you know he's going out there. I've I've seen the president, you know, shoot three fr- free throws in a top coat. I've seen him throw a spiral through a tire. I'm thinking this is, does sound like what they do in North Korea. Like the leader shot, you know, 18 yeah. holes in one on his first round of golf. I mean, it's just, it's, it, so how much of that stuff was, uh, when, when did you plan to write this book? I mean, was the Trump stuff on the horizon at the time? No, not at all. We actually first got the idea of working on Sycophancy about three or four years ago. But then we were waylaid with uh, other projects, and we wrote about maybe 30 pages. And then our agent encouraged us to, to complete the book, which we did about a year, in about a year and a half. But um, everything that's happened with the Trump administration just coincides with what we're doing. And our editors wanted us to add something uh, at the beginning and the end on, on uh, the Trump cabinet as well. But... What we noticed in observing incident after incident, and the one you cite of Anthony Scaramucci speaking directly to the president on TV and saying about five times, I love the president, is just how public the nature of sycophancy has become. That it's not, normally we think of it as an interaction that takes place between the ingratiator and the target. Um, at least in a private zone with previous presidents like um, Johnson or Nixon, the the information is available through tapes and later biographies, but it wasn't performed publicly. That's the big difference with the current administration, that it's not enough to flatter him in uh, privately. He he does 9.30 and 4.30 every day, a flattery folder full of positive comments on what's transpired twice a day. But it's become so much more public. And that's one thing that that June 12th cabinet meeting showed and what we're seeing continuously as of all kinds of people, Kellyanne Conway, the mayor of uh, Puerto Rico, Tillerson and others complimenting uh, Trump in the news, TV, Twitter. All kinds of media. Yeah, for me, this kind of began with the before before he actually took office, after he was elected, when he was sitting at the top of the Trump Tower in New York and people were coming to visit him. And there was a, a camera, um, a, a sort of a surveillance cam in the lobby and people would go across and the reporters would know who was vying for a job by watching you know, the camera, the tape. And that kind of walk, you know, which was in a certain sense, a kind of a crawl. Uh, as you're going up to basically make your pitch, you know, the whole idea of there being a kind of a circuit, uh, uh, he doesn't even see this except for looking at the camera uh, in some sense. And then they go off to the end of the hall there. They go up the elevator. It's almost like a kind of a, a symbolic scene of how digitized this is. This is kind of sick. 
sycophancy through media in ways that we haven't seen before. Sycophancy has always had a public and spectacular component, but I think that the capacities for that spectacle have gotten much more intense and much wider in the last year. Was Romney the low point of it? I, 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 I thought that was so I bad. think it's a low point because, in a sense, you felt for him in a way. You felt like he was... He really I never thought anyone would say that. Yeah. Empathy for Mitt Romney. <laughs> and you felt for him. And it just was so, um, it was so obviously, it was so obviously going to fail. And uh, it just was a little bit heartbreaking. Yeah, I found he was being set up from the moment I knew he was, you know, going in Trump Tower and being considered for Secretary of State. Yeah. But I think we, we might see other low points coming up. I mean, this, this seems to be the, the currency of the day. One thing I would say is that when we started writing this, it was pretty clear that sycophancy was really common on both sides politically. And uh, in a sense, the only difference, I think, between Trump and earlier sort of um, eras of sycophancy is the is the sort of the spectacle that new media provides. Yeah, he's certainly less shameless. I mean, because you hear stories about Hillary Clinton's kind of kind of liking yes men, you know, more than critical few. But yeah, nobody's ever been this shameless about. <laughs> yeah, well, that's almost become even the flattery itself. I think has become a little cruder. It's almost the gesture for the, the crowd. They don't even a good flatterer will be witty and sly and cunning and you know have some ingenuity. But this is pretty. This is laying it on with a trial. In a sense, there's no sense in which they're trying to actually say something that seems intelligent. They just are doing it and doing it for a number of eyeballs. You know, I had a guy on the podcast a few weeks ago named Kieran Setia, and he, he's a philosopher at MIT and wrote this wonderful book on midlife crises. And out of his own sort of struggle with kind of a depressive moment in the middle of his career, and, and, and he sort of used his discipline to think about this phenomenon. And I, I, I love the book, and I love it when someone in the academy actually turns to the wider world uh, to, to, to actually do something for the rest, for, for the rest of society. Because in some way, I almost look at the academy like the church looks at a seminary, right? You, 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 put, you, you get some people that have aptitude, and you pour the tradition into them so that they can steward it for, for the rest of us, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's one of the things I really love about your book is that this is something that people who have, you know, the two of you have spent your life studying literature have done a real service for all of us in, in showing us the relevance of, of of the study of literature for everyday life and public and public life. Is there sometimes a cost as an academic? Do you ever worry about, are, am I going to be taken less seriously if I do a popular book? I, I mean, I, Martha Nussbaum, I heard, has, has taken criticism like that, and I can think of others. Is there is something like that on the line when? As, as, as a professional academic, you write for a wider audience? Well, we're really lucky. Um, both Mark and I have tenure. And academia is one of the areas in which the, we, we have a fair amount of independence and autonomy. And that's so important in the uh, workplace to be able to, uh, to, be, to feel that it's not going to cost you if you're uh, more frank or open with uh, colleagues. And I have to say that as far as writing a book for a broader audience, Many of us in the humanities are being encouraged to do that kind of work. I have colleagues who meet with other friends to talk about how you can write in a way that's more accessible. And I think the trick is finding a topic that really resonates with the public. And then then the really difficult part is um, coming up with a style that's not the kind of tedious footnote-laden kind of work that we typically do. Yeah, and I think that um, 
it does make a difference where you are in your career in terms of doing these projects. I can see someone getting in a real jam at certain places for writing a book like this and it not being considered perhaps um, the kind of discourse that would lead to a tenure, a positive tenure decision. So I think you really do have to pick your spots. <laughs> uh, I haven't noticed any real difference, but I, I, I think people are aware of it when they talk to me. It's like uh, one of the things is I've published books before and everyone comes up and says, great, you published a book. How wonderful. And all that kind of stuff. Now they seem, well, can I say this to you without appearing to be a flapper? So it kind of a <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, do you have to say, "Hey, look, you can say nice things about it. I need it for my ego." Right, right. right. But I guess they feel they have to be more precise. <laughs> have, have your students interacted with the book at all? I'm on leave this semester, so unfortunately, I haven't had any um, responses from any of my students. And uh, the book just came out, so I don't, I don't know if they would, they would know about it. It's sort of um, I've never thought of myself as one of those academics which would talk about my personal life. Or this side of my life in a, in a large class, it just seems a little bit, um, <laughs> a little bit something I wouldn't want to do. So I, no, no response yet. Well, if the students are really praiseworthy, you know they haven't read the book. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sure telltale sign, right? Right. Well, one area where uh, a book like ours might be discussed and with students might be in business schools, because in earlier this summer in May we attended an program organized by the Aspen Institute, and all of the other attendees were business school teachers. And since that's the area where you get a lot of, of, not a lot, but some writing on impression management, I am, that might be the kind of um, academic atmosphere in which you could uh, get some student response immediately. Yeah. I I was also wondering, do you, like, there's, you know, I just saw Martha Nussbaum interviewed about the importance of the humanities. And, you know, there is this sort of, everything is about STEM jobs, STEM jobs. I mean, people in the STEM studies, some say, is that a danger that we are losing the significance of the humanities? Because, I mean, in a liberal society, right, we need people that, we don't, we need engineers and, 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 and scientists, but we also need people that are capable of critical discourse, right? So that we can, you know, if we're going to be a liberal democracy. Well, that was really what was, what we were thinking most deeply about when we were writing this book, that literature, there is something to literature which is different from other ways of knowing the world, and that it can give you insights that you really can't get anywhere else. Um, I, I am a big believer in interdisciplinary, but maybe in a sense that is a little more narrow than it's commonly used. I think that each discipline has something that it can do, and it's most productive in thinking about interdisciplinary work to really be able to talk about the art object or the situation in terms of each discipline at its core. And those ways won't be easily reconcilable. There will be a prompt, but it, there's a certain sense in which literature can talk about things in ways that psychology can't and vice versa. And I think learning from learning, not just to sort of tap on some of the phrases and some of the ideas from another discipline, but actually look through it and see where sort of your discipline can add something is really the most important thing to do. And we need to make a better argument for that, I think, in the humanities, because I, I don't think that's being heard. Yeah, it's, it's challenging, too, right? Once you get in the academy and everybody gets specialized and you, you got publish or perish and you fact, it's it, it probably is hard to find time to have meaningful conversation across disciplines because you can't just sort of sit down for 15 minutes, right, uh, at lunch and go, all right, guys, go. I mean, these are the things that have to come out of real relationships, right, and, 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 and take intentionality. Otherwise, I think you're just kind of, uh, there's, a, there's a book out that really talks about this in, in, in great detail, 
uh, called Sense, uh, like the money, C-E-N-T-S, and Sensibility. And it's uh, written by a, a professor of Slavic and a professor of economics. And they really try to sort of get that kind of conversation between fields going and try to see how in case studies, you can use one discipline to sort of go where the your own discipline really can. And uh, they try really hard to work that out and show that it's not really a synthesis. It's really a, a provocation. And it shows you sometimes the limits of your own field. Recently, I had a lunch with five people I didn't know at my own institution, the University of Virginia. And there were people from the humanities, art history, English, anthropology. But I also invited two colleagues, again, who I'd never met from the, the business school, the Darden School of Business, to see if there might be some possibility of uh, some kind of collaboration where, because there is so much interest on the part of students and students' parents and having them take economics courses. And at the same time, if you talk to my colleagues in uh, the art, uh, Darden or the McIntyre School, uh, which is more for undergraduates, they all acknowledge the importance of literature and the humanities. But maybe if we could fruitfully find some way we could work together in some kind of course sequence or series of courses, that would help bridge the two areas. You two have been teaching undergrads for a while, right, together. Yes. What, what, what do you know? I mean, you're in a unique position, right, to, to see, uh, to get a sense of the zeitgeist. Like, what do you notice particularly about students now that's different from students maybe in recent uh, generate you know the recent generation past. Are there things that stand out to you as people who are teaching literature to to young people today? I would say one thing is that they seem a little bit hurried and pressed, and I think that they're thinking very, they're worried very much about their futures, and they're not quite sure how to address it. And they feel from I think looking at media that some of the con traditional ladders towards success are gone, and they talk about I guess the new metaphor now is a, a footstool. Uh, rather than a ladder, because there's no clear sort of way of going along. And I think they spend an inordinate of time just worrying about that. And I think there's a little less time maybe for that margin, you know, of reading a book that's not on the syllabus, or maybe looking at it, reading it a little more slowly. I think that's very difficult for them to, to, to think through. They really want something for the time and the effort they're putting in that will lead to a career. And I understand, everyone understands that, but there is something that you lose both when you don't have this sort of margin of extra time and a place for curiosity. I guess I would say that there's not so much, I don't notice any um, loss of enthusiasm for the works I teach. And I, I teach a lot of Dante. The students are just as keen about Dante today as they were 20 years ago. But the real sad uh, thing is that I have fewer students. And many, and I noticed my colleagues are experiencing the same phenomenon in art history, for example. We used to have four professors who all taught the Italian Renaissance. You know, we've got Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael, Titian, in, in, and it's not clear where, uh, whether they're going to be replaced. And all of the humanities uh, departments are suffering losses all across, all across the, the U.S. In fact, I just had one thing. It, Part of the pressure is from money. I mean, a lot of my students are working jobs. And, you know, when you ask them to read a novel, it really is difficult to find 12 hours to read great expectations over a week. And some of those old courses, which were so useful, I think, in the 80s, where you read 10, 11 big, fat Victorian novels, 
um, and really learned about how a novel works, you really can't you really can't put those on anymore. It's, there's just not enough time in the day for them. Yeah, there was a great op-ed piece in the New York Times a week or so ago called "The Art of Disagreement," and the columnist was just saying how basically I don't know what they try they we there was no agenda in a lot of these courses we were taking. We read a bunch of books and talked about how they agreed and disagreed with each other, and we learned how to think. <laughs> and and that open-ended education that, but there's a, a beauty to that, right? Where you actually take the time to learn how the, the life of the mind develops through different conversations of different forms of literature over you know. Over the over our history, intellectually. Yes, I, this is this is a hard one to. I, I have to say that this is a good time to be older in the academy, because <laughs> <laughs> I think I often worry about my younger colleagues who've just gotten tenure, and it's hard to imagine their career path uh, anymore. Um, and it's certainly hard to imagine the career path for a lot of people who are on a series of one-year jobs or appointments. Um, it really has broken down in a you know, almost a catastrophic way. You know, at the conclusion of the book, you offer a few ways to think about a sick fancy. Uh, and by the way, this is a really elegant book. I mean, it's short, uh, it's substantive, but short. And so it's, it's, and it is not a, 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 it's not, it's a deep book, but it's not a laborious read. I mean, it was fun to read. Um, I, there's a, th a theologian, Miroslav Volf, who I remember in a book, he, he talked about the levels of human exchange. Um, he said, you know, that, that basically if I take something from you with no, recompense that's theft right then there's exchange where you know even if i think i got a pretty good deal uh, off the car salesman uh, you know or maybe he thinks he really made a good commission it doesn't feel like theft it's, it's exchange and then there's a unilateral thing which is a gift right and then mm -hmm. he says that on the level of human relations that that uh, revenge is akin to theft justice is proximate to exchange and then forgiveness is akin to a gift right. is the real pernicious thing about sycophancy that we I mean, my aunt used to was very popular college administrator, and she used to have all these unisex gifts in the closet around Christmas time because people would bring her gifts, and she those gifts felt like to her like exchanges. So she didn't want to owe the person. You know, oh, here's your gift. I thought of you too. Okay. Is that part of the pernicious nature of sycophancy? Is that gifts are are really offered when they're really not gifts? There's tons of strings attached. Yes, I think that's it. It's. It's really deceptive practice with manipulative intent. <laughs> I, I think that's really the difference. And that's what makes it so hard to pin down. And the deception is of two kinds. It's you're deceiving another person. But Plutarch puts it very well in an old essay called How to Tell a Friend from a Flatterer. It's a short one, but it's a wonderful piece. But he says that the real danger is the flatterer within, the person who basically allows us to rationalize, to justify, to think that our flatteries actually apply to the target uh, and that, our, that it's worth, you know, sort of having this kind of uh, abasement uh, towards them. Uh, that's really the, the thing that needs to be conquered. And I think that goes along with another thing that we haven't touched on is that one of the biggest problems in this whole flattery situation is the enablers. There is so many people who actually conjure it. They call it. They require it. And that really is something that if you wanted to find a pressure point immediately, is trying to find people in these positions that don't do this, that don't ask for flattery. That really should be on, I think, every job committee's mind. Um, who are the people who can operate a little more autonomously and who really won't stand for this kind of activity? And again, that's hard to sort of figure out and suss out, uh, but that's, that's pretty important and it's a good place to think about starting. 
Yeah, you, you, it's interesting that you say that. I, was, I go back to that Harry Frankfurt book. Well, he came out with a sequel called On the Truth, which is a fantastic book. And he talks about what the problem with a lie is that if really what we want to do as humans is to know and be known, right? I mean, this is we, we, we want I-thou relationships. That when you have this lie, that there's one part of you then, at least with one other person, maybe another, that can never be known. And part of your being is now wrapped up with making sure that never comes out. Is this part of the... The apotheosis, you know, the damage of 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 of, of sycophancy is that it it, it it's really it goes counter to what existentially we're looking for as individuals, and is so deleterious to our social bonds. Yes, uh, that's Dante's point, and I, I think that that comes across everywhere, uh, except in some narrow sectors of the research that are it's most recent that's more interested in transactional. That really happens. I mean, I, I think that I often think that we like to think that we're like Popeye. I am what I am. But, you know, there's a sense in which you are what you do. And if you're a sycophant long enough, you really do change your perception. Sycophancy, another way of looking at it is you're trying to change the way that someone looks at the world. You're trying to change the nature of their reality. But it also changes the nature of the flatterer's reality. And ultimately, and this is Dante's point, is that it changes the nature of all of the observer's reality. I mean, they see a different kind of world because of the actions that people take in it. There's just no easy way of washing yourself clean of clean of the slime or the excrement that uh, traditionally is attached to um, acts of sycophancy. Thank you all for talking. I just want to close with a review with a, an endorsement for Dave Barry, who says "Sucking Up" is a terrific book, and I'm not just saying that because the authors have called me the greatest living American writer. <laughs> As only Dave Barry could be funny. Well, thank you, too. I love the book, and I love talking with you, and I have nothing to gain from that. So you can know that's sincere. Well, thank well, you. We really enjoyed talking with you, Scott, and not the least because you, you're, you're so well-read. This has really flowed like a real conversation, and um, that is much of that is all owing to how well-prepared you are and just how well-read you are. Thank you. I'm going to take that's not flattery either. <laughs> well, you know, we can back that up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Deborah and Mark for coming on the show. Please check out their book, Sucking Up a Brief Consideration of Sicka Fancy. You won't regret it, I promise. And thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>